Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast, and I am your host, Shane Phillips. Every episode, we take a research paper on a housing-related subject, invite its author to come on the show, and we talk about what they found and what it tells us about how to make our cities more affordable, equitable, and just overall better places to live. My co-host today is Mike Lenz, and our interview is with Dr. Lewis Thomas of Georgetown University. This conversation is about family-friendly housing, which we'll be looking at through the lens of downtown Vancouver, BC, and the truly incredible growth of their under-15 population over the past 20 years or so. Many cities across North America have been losing kids as housing prices rise, and that actually includes Vancouver. Downtown is just the exception. And ever since the rise of the suburbs, there's been a pretty strong cultural sentiment that cities just aren't a proper place to raise children. As we discuss, that sentiment is something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Our belief in the superiority of suburbs for child rearing leads us to underinvest in the housing and social infrastructure that could make city living more desirable for parents and their children, and the result is that cities lack the things they need to become desirable. Vancouver has taken some very intentional steps to move in the opposite direction, and the results have paid off. Dr. Thomas has cataloged many of the policies and investments that have made that possible and listened to actual parents living in downtown Vancouver to learn what's working for them and what isn't. Cities tend to be more economically productive and environmentally sustainable, and at least in theory, they should offer kids much greater freedom and mobility than the car-oriented suburbs. And frankly, a lot of prospective parents just don't want to live in the suburbs but feel like they have no choice right now. Making cities appealing to people of all ages and life situations is incredibly important for society's future, so we were excited to give it some attention on our show. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and you can contact me with questions or research paper ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu or on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips. Now let's talk to Lou. Joining us this week is Dr. Lewis Thomas, lecturer at Georgetown University and author of a recent article in the Journal of the American Planning Association, Committed and Won Over Parents in Vancouver's Dense Family-Oriented Urbanism. This will be our first time talking about family-friendly housing policy on the podcast, so we're really excited to talk to you, Lou. Thanks for coming on the show and welcome. Hey, thanks so much, Shane and and Mike, for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be on this podcast and part of these larger conversations you're having about housing policy in the U.S. Um, So thanks. Yeah, great to have you. So the first question we always start things off with, if you were giving us a tour of your city, what would be the number one thing you'd want to show us? Um, You know, what are the must-see places and things? And it can be where you live now, which I know is in the D.C. area, or it could be Vancouver, which is what your paper is about, or anywhere else you, you feel you have a connection to. Yeah. Um, well, I do live in D.C. Uh, if, if we were here, I'd take you to the drum circle in Malcolm X Park every Sunday uh, afternoon, which is amazing. Um, I'm also originally from Baltimore, just up the road, which I, I stand by their former official city slogan as the greatest city in America. Um, but <laughs> for the, the point of this this talk, um, let's talk about Vancouver, because that's uh, you know where I ended up doing this most of this research, though I, though I have been done preliminary research in other cities um, that we'll get to. But let's go to Southeast Falls Creek, which is alternately known as Athletes Village. It was built for the 2010 Olympics and then converted Mm -hmm. into a pretty successful urban neighborhood. 
And I would take you to the community centers that are there that really, they have a mandate to serve a, a, a broad spectrum of the population, which is different than a lot of community centers in the U.S., even though we still have them. Right. Um, so they serve low-income residents and they serve middle-income and professional-class residents in a really interesting way, Pre, you know, preschool up through preteen and teenager programming. Um, so that is a huge important part. Then that take you to some of the, the buildings where people live and parents live and get you to talk to those parents and see, you know, what they like about living in these buildings and these neighborhoods. You know, there are like anywhere you live, there's pros and cons, but there's a lot of pros, I think, to those neighborhoods that we don't talk about a lot. And then we'd hop on a train or a car or whatever and go down to Portland, Oregon, and I'd show you how it's it actually, this model has been already built in a small scale in the U.S. Um, so there's there's ways we can do it here. Obviously, there's adaptation, you know, that, that happens with policy transfer. But it's I don't think it just has to be a Canadian thing. So I would emphasize that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm originally from Seattle and... Okay. Um, I would have accepted Vancouver or DC because embarrassingly, I have not been to either. <laughs> Having grew up my whole life in the wow. Seattle area and never been to Vancouver is is a great shame of mine to this day. <laughs> and sometime, sometime soon, I'm going to actually need to to go up there and visit it. Uh, yeah, it's Mike, great. We haven't really given you the chance to say hi. It's been a little while. How you doing? I'm doing well, Shane. Um, it is great to be uh, back on the podcast. I'm still coming to you all from from London. Um, so we've got at least three countries represented uh, in this discussion in some way, shape or form. I have been to DC, but not uh, not <laughs> Vancouver. Have you been in London long enough to give us like a brief tour of anything yet? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> not really, not really, because I, I just came from the countryside. So, you know, I've, I've already escaped the city. And it's, <laughs> It's funny to hear people in the country like junk on London, you know, like right now, London is the greatest place I've ever been in my life. You know, just just as just as this like, you know, weird expat having having a good old time on a sabbatical. And then you go to the country and they're like, oh, my God, why would you want to live there? <laughs> what? <laughs> OK. Thanks. Uh, thanks for not doing the accent, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> That's best skip skipped for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so we can we can get into this. We'll try to set some context here first. Yeah. And one of the stats that you lead with, which makes Vancouver an interesting place to study this topic, is how the city has actually grown over the past few decades. Yeah. And looking specifically at the under fifteen year old population, so the kids in the city basically citywide the population of these residents has been basically stagnant for a few decades it actually went down by one percent during between 1996 and 2016 but in the downtown peninsula where which is really the focus of your paper the population almost tripled during that same time period from about 2200 to about 6000 almost 6000 um so just for you know some background here why is family-friendly urbanism important? Like what motivated you to study this? And how does this fit into, you know, your broader research agenda of things you're working on? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think those stats are really important in telling. But I'll, t I'll tell a personal story uh, about how I came to this research was, you know, I was a young parent. We moved from uh, D.C. to 
to Boston so I could get my PhD when my wife was eight months pregnant with our daughter wow. and uh, our first child. And, you know, even if we had been anywhere else, we wouldn't have had family support, you know, and we were in a new place without family support. And, you know, our daughter had been home from the hospital like a few weeks. And my wife was like, I, you know, I can't do this alone. This is crazy. And, you know, being a planner, I was like, well, maybe there's co-housing around or something, you know, and there was, and there was co-housing in Jamaica Plain. Uh, and it was, they had an open unit, which is insane and really rare. And we, we got in there and co-housing is, it's basically a co-op with some, you have your own unit, but then you have, uh, like there was a kid's playroom in the building and a shared mm-hmm. kitchen. And a, it was a, and this one was a really urban model. It was basically a, a modified courtyard building or like, you know, that was sort of open. Okay. Yeah. It, yeah. It's interjective. So what, what your wife was saying by, I can't do this alone. She wasn't saying like, you're off working. <laughs> no, 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 alone. Like, I need I need a community, right? Like yes, I need I, should, I need, I should, I need yes, other yes. parents. Yeah, yeah. It was that we can't do this alone because I was <laughs> yeah. taking advantage as much as I could of a, a flexible graduate schedule, which is sure. just means I was stressed out all the time, and like yeah. really never sleeping. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was that was her concern, and uh, and we got in, which is we were super lucky, uh, and it was amazing having kids there, you know, and. There were other slightly older kids at the time that, you know, were really kind to our daughter and wanted to hang out with her. And then a lot of retired older ladies that, you know, wanted to help us walk the kid or walk the dog. Um, and, you know, we there were people we got along with better than other people, but it was this really amazing place to have a kid. You know, and I had traveled some to Europe and to uh, Mexico and Central America and, and Turkey and had seen, you know, and I lived in New York, really dense urban places where it wasn't weird to raise your kids there. And yeah, that yeah. just seemed like what people did, like probably like in London, that's more of a norm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and so it got me thinking, you know, why why is that not how we as planners and builders in the U.S., you know, think about space? Like what, you know, because at this point, the city had been gentrifying, uh, you know, for a, a decade or two. And it was mainly studios and one bedrooms, you know, going up. And, and that was the marketing and the talk, uh, you know, around these buildings. And if you, you know, I later dug into the policy documents and that actually was you know, like direct strategies in D.C. If we get more, you know, there's reports from from Brookings uh, when Anthony Williams, the former mayor of D.C., you know, said he was going to bring 100,000 people to the city. They actually ran models that families, even middle class and professional class, class families, cost the city more because of amenities. Um, and so, you know, if you if you're worried about your city, you know, going bankrupt like D.C. was having a strategy that targeted singles and empty nesters, you know, it was it seemed like a better strategy. So uh, so I was curious about all that. And I started doing some research and Vancouver had adopted these policies uh, really in 89 is where they start applying the policies to all buildings subsidized and market rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then you see, you know, in the decades following this increase in families with 
children living downtown. You know, is that a direct correlation? Uh, yeah, I think you can argue it is. Were those policies unique to downtown Vancouver or were they citywide and it was like really just a lot of families ended up there because that's where most of the housing was being built or something like that? So we can get into this more when we get into the weeds of the policy. But um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you had the great episode of your podcast with Minji Kim and, and her research. And basically every building, you know, Vancouver in the zones that have high density, which really is only the downtown peninsula and right across it and around False Creek, um, mm-hmm. and then some transit-oriented development. But uh, most of the city is still single-family detached housing and looks like most of Seattle, you know, as far as like land right, use. Right. Um, so those areas, pretty much every building is rezoned and then they do a, a value capture. And to get your rezoning, you you follow the guidelines. Mm-hmm. And so you follow the family-friendly guidelines. Excuse okay, me. okay. So in short, new dense buildings pretty much have to be family-friendly to get built. Got it, got it. Yeah. Okay. In the introduction to your paper... You review some of the biases against yeah. multifamily housing, and you, you sort of, you know, hinted at them just a moment ago, and, and and especially as a place to raise children. And I think, you know, a lot of these go back a very long time, but many persist to this day. You know, the first thing I thought of was like back in the days when urban areas really were just desperately overcrowded, really unhealthy in terms of sanitation and the spread of disease. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on, you know, Go back as far as you like, but you know, up to the modern day, where do these biases against urban housing as a family-friendly housing come from? Yeah. Um, the best source I found on this is um, Robert Fishman's Bourgeois Utopias, sort of mm-hmm. a, about the birth of the bourgeois suburb um, in early 1800s London, you know, and, and then Manchester, really, that you know, overcrowding was an issue, but before... You know, you even got there, you just had this, a new idealization and romanticization, more importantly, of nature. And this idea to, you know, what had been weekend homes for wealthy merchants, you know, all of a sudden you had communities being built where the men would get a carriage together, you know, into the city and the women and children would stay home away from the ills of the city, which Mm -hmm. had to do with overcrowding and sanitation, but also had to do with just, you know, general ideas of social mixing and vices and, you Mm -hmm. know, keeping, protecting women and children from those. Um, That sort of the dirty city was a, a man's place. So there's like a long gendered history of this, you know, and that gets changed and morphs you know, as, as um, you know, Olmsted with Riverside brings those kind of suburbs over to the U.S. And, and they get popular here. But then you really see a lot of language in the early 20s from planners uh, and, and other city professionals villainizing multifamily housing and the National Real Estate Board working with um, Herbert Hoover when he was head of the Treasury uh, promoting s- single-family detached homes as sort of the moral way to raise your children in an ethical way, you know, the only ethical way to raise your children. Even in, in Euclid versus Ambler, which, you know, is about industrial versus residential, but the justification that the Supreme Court used was to keep multifamily buildings out of single-family detached homes because they destroyed the child-bearing, like the... Um, 
I mean, the direct quote's in my paper. I should have it here, but it's it's wild. You know, um, multifamily housing is a mere parasite on the yeah, single we all, family. Exactly. We all know the mere parasite part, yeah. <laughs> a, mere, a mere parasite part. So it's, you know, as far as how Americans were actually using city space, uh, it, 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 you know, there were a lot of sections of the city that were working class, you know, that weren't horribly overcrowded. Um, that people, you know, kids played in the streets. It's before mass car ownership. It's before TV. It's before air conditioning. So you had a different use of public space. But then you really have the subsidies that went in to build the suburbs and to get low mortgages for returning white veterans. Um, you have Levitt making it really affordable. You could get a, uh, if you were a white returning veteran, you could get a home in Levittown uh, with no down payment, and it was six hundred dollars a month in like today's dollars. Wow. So it was incredibly affordable for the white working class, you know. And you have blockbusting going on. Um, so I think, you know, the elite class had had that ideal for a long time of sort of the detached home, but as it becoming a, a practice and an aspiration for like working class Americans of, of all races now. You know, that ideal comes a little bit later and really follows the suburbs, you know, and like the post-war suburbs, I would think. I feel like the fact that, you know, this is argued to have at least partially come out of London, the UK. I feel like, isn't that where we got lawns too? Just yeah. like so many terrible <laughs> ideas coming out of there, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the Americans have uh, taken over the title. And then, yeah, we definitely supercharged lawn. it all. Yes, yeah, we... <laughs> You know, following up on this a little bit, um, Vancouver is one example, but as you said, there are places all over the world where people live with kids in cities, yeah. Singapore, Paris, Seoul, whatever. How do they experience child rearing in these places? Like, do these biases exist even there and people just kind of are over them? Like, what's what's happening in these places? I mean, that, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned all the cities you did. So... The biases are not there like they are in the U.S. I think mm -hmm. I think that's safe to say. I think in anywhere you go, there's going to be different preferences for, um, you know, some people want to live in the city and some people want to live on the edge or outside of it. I mean, that, you know, exists everywhere. But there's some great work by Leah Karsten, uh, and she was interviewing families in Hong Kong. And, and there was some blog I read where she was talking about the research and, and she talks about how it took people a while because she was asking the same questions and families in Hong Kong, like they didn't even understand the question, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like it took them a while to get like, oh, she's asking, would we rather live in a detached home, you know, and they were, they sort of thought, no, you know, I'm sure there were some that did, but in, in general, mm -hmm. you, you know, that that's, and like that was found in Singapore too by Yen et al. and some other researchers, um, so I do think you can say, you know, in other countries, it's, it's not the same as it is here. And, and one other thing I want to build off of that that I think is really important, just like I think you, you can argue, you know, through backing mortgages and through the highways and the GI Bill, you know, the U.S. government subsidized the building of the suburbs. Um, Fishman and Bourgeois Utopia has this quick passage that I, I need to research more or, or write on it myself on sort of housemen in Paris subsidizing 
the new bourgeois apartment life mm-hmm. as sort of, you know, after they, when they built the boulevards and built all the apartments, like in one sense, that's a government subsidy, you know, and you're creating a new lifestyle of families can live in these spacious apartments in the city. Uh, and similar things happened with Vienna and the Ringstrasse. So, you know, I think there is a, a history here with, you know, what we think of in the suburbs and in Europe with more uh, central you know, apartment living of of planners defined broadly subsidizing new ideals of where families should be in the city. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So moving to Vancouver specifically, let's just start with some of the more technical aspects of what makes Vancouver relatively family friendly. And then we can kind of move on to the more informal and social elements that do seem to be really important. Yeah. So could you give us an overview of some of the policies that that Vancouver has that are intended to make the city a more family-friendly place to live? We already talked about the the two and three bedroom requirements, mm-hmm. but you can go into those a little more. I'm sure there's other things here as well. Yeah. And, and I'll get into the history of these policies too, because I think that's, okay. that's yeah. interesting. And I have another paper on that in planning perspectives uh, that we, we can link to. But yeah, yeah, we will. What's, what's interesting about Vancouver, because we did talk about the downtown peninsula, and if if you know that, mo- a lot of it is what's called the West End, which first densified in the late 50s through 70s, had this, you know, wild, uh, these sort of mini towers in the park going up. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's a different form than I've ever seen anywhere else. It, it's an interesting form. But those kind of like most contemporary densification in North America those in the 50s through late 60s were targeting the childless and even to this day that area is 80% studios and one bedrooms mm. which is pretty mm. wild so the that's part of the downtown peninsula so all that increase is on the former industrial land you know that they've densified post post 90s but so there was a backlash against that and instead of a pro-business city council that was doing that densification to raise tax money because they were scared of suburban competition, not quite flight, you know, but like uh, mm-hmm. competition of suburban retail. So they, uh, in the early 70s, uh, team comes to power, which is the, the elector actors movement, which is this new nonpartisan uh, centrist uh, city government. And they're really against this density. But they're also against highways, and they cancel the highway, <laughs> and then then they say to themselves, "Okay, there's besides the new housing tower boom, there was the office tower boom in downtown in in the you know in, in the '60s." So they said, "How are we going to get people to work if we don't have a highway? Let's build an equitable neighborhood right next to downtown, so that you know from the maintenance workers to the executives, they can take the sea ferry to work." Like that was like actually their thinking, which is mm-hmm. a really different way, you know, than we're thinking these days. Yeah, I was I was gonna say that they sound like pure NIMBYs, just like yeah. don't build anything, but it actually right. apparently not because they they just had a different vision. Well, so they they downzone the rest of the city, which is why mm-hmm. it's so crazy. Um, and Lay has a lot of great articles about that. But then this one former industrial land across the creek from downtown. They said, let's build a medium density, uh, you know, by it was real missing middle, you know, in today's mm-hmm. terms, neighborhood. And 
They did. And at first, people weren't moving in. And then the mayor, who was an investment banker, he moved in with his family. And then it like became very popular. So it, it, it came became very popular pretty fast uh, and was considered a success. It's very hard to, to replicate that kind of policy. It's right? going to be really, yeah, you can't really you know, replicate it. it. For, yeah. for it to work, the mayor has to move in. Exactly. <laughs> not, you know, not a lot of cities are going to get that. It's, I mean, I do think, though, like... Um, Yes, you are correct. <laughs> um, but there were some other, I mean, I think this is the 70s when, you know, there wasn't the push to move back to the center city like there is right, today. Right. You know, so I, I think those yeah. forces have changed for sure. Um, but they had this planned retail section that failed. And, you know, and they went and did a post-occupancy report and people were saying, oh, all these green spaces where you thought community would form, no one's really using those. And your retail failed because there's not enough foot traffic. Maybe you should build denser. Mm. So then they do this great report. Uh, it's like 120 pages long called Housing Families at High Densities. And it's only for subsidized housing. But it's, it's so detailed and beautiful. It's, it's, it's a great, uh, a really great document. And, and I, we can link to that online too. And so they had that for subsidized housing and they built some really interesting products uh, in, in that era. And then with Falls Creek North, which is what, when people see that picture of Vancouver and all the glass towers, that's that's the development called Falls Creek North. Um, that was land owned by the province, not the city. And so the city knew the province was going to hire a private developer to do it. And so the city revised its guidelines from 120 pages down to 11 to like these really pithy guidelines so that the new development going in could get the amenities they wanted and be family friendly. And so along with value capture, which is the main way they, they do all this. So they zone, you know, half of what they want it to actually be and what everybody expects. And then they call it in Vancouver, the land lift. So you, you calculate, you know, once you get the new density, you calculate what that new value would be. And then the mm -hmm. developer has to give the city anywhere from 20 to usually like 75% of that value, either in in-kind or in cash contributions, uh, community amenity contributions is what they call them, CACs. And to get the rezoning, you follow this 11-page document with the guidelines for family friendliness, um, amongst other documents, but that's one of the big ones, um, where you have... 25% or more two-bedroom units. And now, you know, as of 2016, you have to add 10%. They, you know, they talk a lot about bicycle storage for children. They talk about sort of trying to do like a mudroom type thing when you come into your condo. You know, there's there's a whole bunch of, of policies like that. Then they have sort of a, you know, dedicated play space. Uh, and all of these are guidelines. So they they have, you know, numeric recommendations, but they expect each developer and each architect to to do it as appropriate for the site. You know, mm -hmm. so it's not like a checklist, which which you know can take more time, but also leads sometimes to better results. So those are sort of the the main the main things. I, I, oh, visual and acoustic privacy is a big one that's really important. Um, and as an aside, another thing I found is once you get into tall concrete buildings. You, um, you actually have way better acoustics between units, you know, less sound transfer. So that, that helps with family friendly buildings versus, uh, wood frame buildings. 
Mm-hmm. So, so those are all, you know, really big pieces. Um, they get annually $151 million in these uh, community amenity contributions. They also have development cost levies that go on any development anywhere in the city. And, and they put all that money into, you know, uh, a lot of it goes, does go into affordable housing. It's still, you know, not enough to make Vancouver affordable. And then they use that money for community centers, which are really well-funded and programmed. They often have daycares. They have a daycare shortage in the city, so that's an issue. But um, some some buildings have daycares in the building even uh, when they get built. Child care facilities, uh, transportation, parks. And, and they do really smart things with their parks. Like you were talking about schools. The school they built in uh, Falls Creek North, the elementary school, has a public park right next to it. And that's the school's park. So, mm-hmm. you know, during the day, the kids use it for soccer games and, and whatnot. And they have a little playground also. But um, then it's used by everyone in the city, you know, in the evening and on the weekends and during the day when the kids are there, too. Uh, so it is, you know, a little bit of getting used to. It's a different model than we mm-hmm. have. But um, but it works there. I did. Uh, I did really appreciate in your paper, you included some drawings that that some kids did from one of the buildings and it was just like a compilation of them. And I learned about dude chilling park in Vancouver, which <laughs> was news to me. Apparently yes. not the original name, but they like officially renamed the park dude chilling park. There's a, um, there's a statue yeah. in it. It looks like a dude chilling. Yes. Yeah, so oh, wow. I mean, it's a very different I'm surprised vibe. that didn't end up on your, your tourism list, yes. but it's going to be on my list. Yeah. When yes. I visit. It's, it's okay park you know <laughs> um, i just, yeah, I just that, need to take the picture that yeah. drawing is um the, the single best piece of data i ever found you know <laughs> on, uh, just is this an ideal environment for children you know this child obviously loves the building she's in and mm-hmm. you know it's a drawing of all her friends in the building yeah yeah there's another story it's, it made it into the paper uh where a, a kid was out with her uncle who's a developer or a con- no a contractor uh, and he's building this like 3,000 square foot single family detached home you know which is common in Vancouver and and the, the kid says that building's so small right <laughs> and the guy's like what are you talking about it's huge and she goes but how many families live there you know, and the, the uncle says mm. one and the girl just can't believe it and said, that's crazy. So many yeah. families live in my building. Yeah. You know, like to her, that's what you want a, a building to be is tons yeah. of families. So you have lots of friends, you know, and, and that's a great place to her. And I guess so That that's an interesting thing that you should, you know, talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you designed your study and how mm. you, you know, kind of gathered yeah. Um, not o- not only this very rich history that you shared with us, but like the specifics on the on the different outcomes that you found. But it you know an interesting thing, of course, people will say, well, you know, if you talk to the the families that live there, they're less predisposed to want to live in the suburbs. They're more they're more predisposed to want to live in the city, and they've already accepted a certain density. You know, it, you know is is you know desirable to yeah. them. But the kids, there's no selection bias with the kids. No. Uh, you know, there might be a little bit of a, uh, of, of, you know, ingraining um, that mm-hmm. goes on from one generation to the next that like, yes, this is normal and this is good. But yeah, yeah. 
another really cool thing about kind of getting that you know imp- that that information from the kids is like they didn't choose where to live. Yeah. You know, they, they, they like it. Right? Exactly. It's normal. It's normal and good to them, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you and so this is a good transition actually, mm-hmm. because you use one of the market rate communities in yeah. the city um, as sort of a case study. And it's called appropriately yeah. the social. And you know, one thing that stood out to me was how density seemed to help create this critical mass of parents who could support each other for, you know, the little things like watching a kid while someone goes to run an errand. And one quote you have in here is from a parent is the only thing worse than having a baby uh, is having a baby in the suburbs. (laughs) And so can you just talk about that a little bit more? I feel like dense housing, you know, is often viewed as sort of isolating and anonymizing. And I think there's absolutely truth to that. And it can be that, Um, but it doesn't seem to be what was happening in this building at least. Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. Um, And I include another quote from a a dad in another building who had lived in the suburbs, you know, and he talks about how he would just drive his car in in the suburbs and not see his neighbors. And now he lives in the city in a, you know, a 30 story condo in the top and he doesn't see his neighbors. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like that, that neighborliness, you know, is, is, you know, it can be there or it cannot be there both in the city and in the suburbs. Um, right. But um, as far as the social, there are a lot of particular things about the social that, that make it, that do make it sort of unique, even in the Vancouver context. So what I found in talking to a lot of families that lived in, in market rate, you know, basically condominium buildings, they often loved living in the city and in their building, but they didn't know a lot of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And versus Vancouver has compared to the U.S., you know, it's just got slightly more social housing. You know, it's still closer to the U.S. than, say, Europe or even England. But um, it's it's you know, it does have a little bit more social housing and they have these cooperatives. And there, you know, it's a more intentional community. Everybody knew their neighbors. But so the social was really interesting because it it didn't it, it had this sense of community for some of the neighbors. And, and I did meet some other market rate residents who talked about that in, in their buildings too. But, you know, what were the particular things that allowed that to happen? That's what I was, I was really curious about. So one of them is, you know, in the guidelines and in a lot of the buildings that get built, they sort of, the, the way buildings get built is you have one sort of playground space that's often sort of tucked away, you know, and like not mm-hmm. very attractive and not a place you would really want to be unless you're a kid who's like at the playground. Um, and then they have like another community space somewhere else in the building on like a roof deck or something. So they're, they're often separated. And, you know, when I talked to parents who lived in those, they were like, yeah, we hardly ever go to the playground because it's like dark and windy, you know, or like, the, you know, weird wind issues come up with towers um, or, or no one's there, you know, so they just use it a little bit. But the common space at the social it had, you know, what parents called the crappiest playground. And it was this one dinky little thing. And then the rest of it wasn't too fancy, which is another thing you hear complaints about, like the, the common space being so fancy that you don't want to take your kids there because you're scared they're going to break stuff. <laughs> so the uh, like I interviewed a guy in a, in a building in D.C. and, you know, he was renting and then they loved the building and they bought a unit there. And I was like, oh, do you use the roof deck? And he said, no, there's pebbles. 
so we can't take our toddler up there because he throws the pebbles off the roof deck. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> We're so, like, exactly. These really simple designs, you know, like no uh, horizontal fencing, you know, like no pebbles. Um, they also put the pebbles in their mouths, too. Exactly. Just, yeah. <laughs> That's bad, but not as bad as hitting someone on the sidewalk. You know? no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so the social had just, it was just kind of a space, you know, and there were some nice planners and there were some benches and there was a barbecue and it had a bathroom, you know, inside off of it. And so people would hang out there with their kids. And, and the way it got started was... One mom had actually lived in a cooperative before and it had her uh, kids at the cooperative um, or her one kid. And they said they really loved it. But like, you know, she said people were a little intense. You know, that was sort of the, the, the implication I got. Um, a little too cooperative. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there's, there's all different levels um, and they wanted to build equity. You know, which is like mm -hmm. her, her husband was older and, you know, they were worried about retirement. So they moved in there into the social. And, you know, she said, I really miss that sense of community. So I, I went to the condo board and said, can I get money to have a barbecue? And they said, sure. And then she did it. And then she organized uh, a, you know, and she had some flyers up. And then she did the same thing for a Halloween event. And then after that, like those two things were all she really needed to do. Mm -hmm. And then people just started saying, oh, let's go up Friday night and hang out, yeah. you know, on this common space. And it was it was on the fifth floor. So it's sort of raised above traffic. If you have real little kids, you're not worried about them running out into the street. It's, it's a nice space to be in. So it, it became really well used. I mean, and it's interesting, you know, it's a... a I think it's like a, what's it, a hundred and some units in the building. You know, probably there's four families out there, you know, on a weekend, you know, or something, maybe a few more. But you don't need that many people, you know, for it to be enough. But you need that many units today to get that, that small amount of people to form right, a community. Right. If, that if makes it's sense. only like a 20 unit building, it might just be the one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So there really are these advantages. To density. Yeah. And then the other interesting thing about the social in, in Vancouver's guidelines, and if you go back and, and read uh, urban design literature, there's a lot of talk around, you know, parents should be on the first four floors so they can see their kids playing and, and be connected to the street. And you don't want parents in towers. Um, what I found at the social is most of the floor five through nine were two bedroom and two bedroom plus dens. So they were the bigger units in the building. And there, all the parents in the focus group that I conducted who lived there said, oh, we love living there. And, you know, only one little wing, like only four units could actually see into the, the play space or the, the courtyard. The rest couldn't. Um, and it was double loaded corridor. But when you have a double loaded corridor, if you have all family units along it, no one's going to care if your kids are running down the hallway and you leave your stroller in the hallway. Mm -hmm. So during the focus group, there was this moment where people were like, oh, yeah, we use the hallways and we, and we don't care, you know, and like everyone thinks it's great. And then one family was like, wait, we've gotten three noise complaints. Mm -hmm. That family <laughs> lived on the one floor where there were just two bedrooms on the corners and then studios, you know, in, mm -hmm. the, in yeah. one yeah. bedrooms in between because – they didn't have a critical mass of families on their floor. 
Um, yeah. And that, that actually comes into, into policy issues a lot because of the, the borrowed light issue in buildings. Like to do, to do two bedroom or larger or three bedroom units on a, in a double loaded corridor plan, except for the corner units, you're not, it's hard to get those units without doing what's called borrowed light, where you have, you know, one of the bedrooms has a interior window that go, you know, gets light from the exterior, oh, okay. which, yeah. um, some zoning codes uh, and guidelines, it changes city to city, like don't allow that. So whereas, I mean, you know, I, you would have to research this more, but I don't think most kids care if their bedroom has a, a window or a bunch of glass bricks at the top. Um, you know, as long as it's fire safety and all that is, is accounted mm-hmm. for, um, right. you know, that doesn't seem actually like a huge issue. Yeah, yeah. So moving outside of these buildings, yeah. um, you know, proximity to daycare and community centers, schools, libraries, parks, and other things that you describe as social infrastructure seem to also be really, really important here. So do you have a sense for the scale of these investments being made in downtown Vancouver? It it does strike me that, you know, the new buildings alone, even if there's quite a bit of development, probably can't pay for all of this stuff. And so, you know, do you have to have a broader commitment to, you know, that the government is going to invest in these things um, with its own money, not just with developer money? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. And I think that that is true. Um, that said... You know, with the the density that Vancouver is building, mm-hmm. you know, they get com- between community amenity contributions and development cost levies, they get almost two hundred and twenty million dollars a year, you know, out of out of these funds. Um, so I do think you can do a lot, you know, with the funds with developer funds um, more more than than we tend to do in the U.S. and by by changing. By doing even denser buildings, you can get even more money from them. So that you know, that's where it's it's it gets complicated. I do think also a lot of U.S. cities have a lot of underutilized community centers and public land that they they can use to build things like this. Like um, you know, right behind the social, there's one building, and this was built using developer money, but it has a library a community center, a daycare, a coffee shop, and then 98 market rate units above it, which in Vancouver is rare to have market rate rentals. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the city is able to own them as an equity thing, even though they're market rate, which is interesting. But, uh, you know, I know in DC, they can't, like they've tried to build public housing on top of libraries and they've been fought by an organization that believes libraries should be their standalone building. And uh, so you, know, you, get, you, know, you get really like, like just if you can change the ideal to like, you know, what's, mm-hmm. what's good urbanism to, to something denser and more like actually more mixed. Um, and you know, the parents that I talked to at the social and the parents everywhere I talked to loved these community centers. And, you know, like one family who had teenagers uh, talked about how their daughter had gone through all the programs and now was a counselor in the summer, you know, at the mm. community center um, and had a whole cohort of friends. She had been with her whole life, you know, around the community center. Um, he described it. He said it was like his small town in rural British Columbia, you know, in, wow. in the middle of downtown Vancouver. So, you know, how... How do you get that and, um, 
I think I think we have a lot of resources we're not using to their fullest that would, you know, would cost some money, but would maybe cost less than it, we would think it would. Yeah, I know that I know that the use of like our public schools in the evenings as parks is one thing that comes up yeah. a lot here that, you know, traditionally they're just closed off after school's out. And it's just this it's often the biggest open space in a lot of neighborhoods, especially yeah. a place like L.A., um, and there's been a push to open those up and program them during the evenings and, and weekends and so forth. So that's a really good point. That's a bizarre Los Angeles thing <laughs> to me. You know, like you know, in when I where I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, like it's just not like that at all. I constantly have found it bizarre that you lock just that the <laughs> fences are there in the first yeah. place. Mm-hmm. You know, in some parts of where I've grown up, just not. It exists. I wonder how much of it has to do with like the cars too, you know, and keeping yeah. kids yeah. away from the streets basically. And then once the yeah. fences are yeah, up, you just yeah. I mean, use them yeah. for other stuff too. We could have a whole other, <laughs> right, we have a whole other conversation on, on like what makes schools so locked down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know, yeah. But, yes. Yes. Yeah. There's other, other things and, going on there too, it, for sure. Yeah. But there's a whole pretty. community schools initiative um, you know, that's working in cities like Baltimore, and uh, I just saw a talk at ACSP about it, um, that, you know, are trying to use schools, even in, in other cities, you know, that, mm-hmm. that have a different spatiality than L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, right. with that same idea, which I think is great. Yeah. And you, you mentioned in the paper how even when families with children leave the downtown for more suburban neighborhoods or, or don't go, it's not necessarily because they want to leave or don't want to be yeah. there. You quote one parent who really did want to stay and even rented a house that was under 900 square feet in the place that they did ultimately move because they said a larger home would just feel weird to them. But they ended up leaving because the wait lists for daycares, which you mentioned, were too long in the downtown area. And I bring that, you know, I bring that up partly to just kind of opine on how big of a bummer that is. (laughs) Um, But you get a sense for that this is something Vancouver city government is trying to address or is it? just a matter of like too much change too fast or have they really not been as responsive as they should be? Um, so that's, that's really, it's a great and important question and a really complicated one. That, that, that parent, that quote is actually from an article this, this parent wrote. It wasn't an interview I had, but it's a, it's a really important telling, mm-hmm. I think, story. And so Vancouver's trying to build a lot of daycares. And I mean, they're proposing really interesting things like building them on top of existing city parking garages, you know, and, and I mean, they're, they're trying to get like, I think really creative with it. And so a lot of the issue, you have this crazy issue with the schools downtown where the school board is controlled by the province, not the city. So, you know, it's a separate issue. And then as, as we said at the beginning, you know, the, the number of children in the city overall is flat, which actually means in the outer single family detached areas, because they've gotten so expensive and they got super expensive before the condos mm-hmm. got crazy expensive. It was always all crazy expensive, but the, the condos were relatively more affordable. And then around 2017 shot up to be as, as, as expensive as the detached homes. But so those school districts have lots of empty seats in the outlying parts of the city. So mm-hmm. the, the city can't get money from the province to build new schools in the overcrowded downtown because the province says, well, you have all these empty seats right. if you send your kids really far, you know, 
to empty. So it's, it's a, that's like a huge mess in the way that the city works there. As an alternative policy, uh, this is an anecdote I learned, or not an anecdote, a policy I learned from a, a colleague of mine who's a transportation planner and takes students to, to Amsterdam every summer and studies suburban Amsterdam. And they have a policy that the national government that if a municipality approves a new housing development, there has to be an elementary school within walking distance. So if they approve, uh, you know, anything sprawling, then they're on the hook to build an elementary school mm-hmm. that kids can walk to, which I think is, you know, another way to like, how do we rethink neighborhoods and schools and equity and development? You know, whereas in Vancouver, a lot of parents complained about how far their commutes for elementary school were because there aren't enough schools downtown. And then the daycare situation is, it's wild. I mean, there's such a shortage of daycare facilities. I think because they, it got so expensive so fast, you know, that there aren't the sort of private sector, you know, daycares that we rely on, you know, and they rely on in Canada too. Yeah. And it's not, and it's not like daycare shortages are unique to Vancouver or even downtown exactly. Vancouver. Yes, That's like no. a, oh, a yeah. nationwide thing in the U.S. And and I do, I, I want to take right. a step back here and just like state clearly, we're talking a lot about daycares and schools and this is a housing podcast. Maybe people are kind of wondering why that <laughs> is, but I do think it's, you know, there's a pretty clear connection. Like we want a lot more yeah. housing in our cities. We want for affordability reasons, for environmental reasons, for access to opportunity reasons. And if yeah. we don't have this social infrastructure to support them, it's not going to go there. There's not right. going to be the demand to move to those places. Yeah, um, exactly. And so, you know, it seems like maybe a bit of a tangent, but I do think this is really central. And if we can't solve these problems, it's going to be really hard to get the housing where it needs to go. Yeah. So I, I, I in the title, you talk about one over and committed parents. And I found that categorization really interesting. So you have people who are sort of committed to urbanism and in living downtown and others who were more sort of won over to that lifestyle and didn't come to it with like this strong desire. And it sort of reminds me of how we classify uh, bicyclists. You have like the enthused and confident, you have the interested, but concerned and so forth. Yeah. Could you tell us a little more about those two categories, the committed versus won over and, and sort of what we can learn from both. And I'm curious if you think there's sort of a sequence, if we should, you know, kind of try to get the committed parents first and then move on to the winning, uh, move on to winning over more of them, or is it really kind of the same thing that both groups need? Yeah, those those are great questions. Um, and I think it, the, the answer also speaks to Mike's question about the potential sample bias. You know, like, are you getting, are you just hearing from the people who would be living in the city anyway, regardless of these policies? Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, and that's, and it's true that my sample was heavily, you know, biased towards committed urbanists. But in my interviews in Vancouver, this came up repeatedly. And even in, I interviewed uh, a lot of parents in Portland, Oregon, in Boston, in Washington, D.C., because originally right. I was going to do this, this big comparison case or, or a cross city case. And, and I, I heard it there too. This, you know, sometimes it's, it's the couple just, you know, was moving to the city in their 20s because that's what they did. And, you know, they figured they would move to the suburbs once they had kids. So, I mean, that's a really common story, yeah, you yeah. know, that, that we hear all the time. So so you can think about one over urbanists of like, how do you capture that 
demographic and those people and keep them in the city raising their kids. And then, uh, you know, versus, you know, I'm not sampling people who never moved to the city and aren't going to move to the city and, you know, don't want to move to the city. Mm -hmm. That's, you're not, I don't think you're going to convince them to move to the city to raise their kids. Um, But so the categories, you know, you meet a lot, you interview a lot of parents or I interviewed a lot of parents who they sort of had this self-identification as not suburban, you know, and as like an urbanite. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how they don't like the suburbs. Uh, One mother said, I asked her where she grew up and she said, suburban yuck. Oh, I hate it. You know, like that was her like visceral response. And and then right. she said, I could, I could live in the wilderness or I could live in the city. And you sort of have that, you know, dichotomy going on, which is, which is interesting. But so, you know, I met a lot of those parents for sure. But then I repeatedly kept hearing these parents say, you know, we were going to move to this city uh, or I thought I wouldn't like raising my kid in the city, but I love it. You know, and then in Vancouver, they often talked about how easy it was to have the community center. Like a great example is they have all these uh, drop in tot gyms where they take the basketball court and they fill it with, you know, like a bunch of soft pads and plastic slides and big balls and and little uh, trikes. And, you know, parents are like, these are great. We can live in a small condo. And not have to have all that plastic crap in our house, you know, in our condo. And we can, and our kid still gets it three or four days a week. Someone else gets to clean it up too. Exactly. <laughs> totally. I mean, the parents help put everything away. It's actually, it's a, it's a pretty nice run program, but it's, it's free. It's, they're Canadians. You know, yeah, they're Canadians. Exactly. They are Canadians. It's true. They're mannerly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was, yes, that, that definitely is part of it. But you also heard, and this was something I didn't expect, or I didn't expect, but a lot of parents of teenagers talking about the the bicycle network and the transit for their mm. teenagers and how yeah. like that saved them having to shuffle their kids all around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were like really grateful for that, that there were these protected bikeways and that there was, you know, good bus service and, and they have a light rail. So their, their kids could get around and explore and see their friends on their own once they're teens. So I, I think the categories are really helpful because you also, you hear a lot, you know, a lot of this is more in popular lit than in, than in housing research, but, uh, you know, preference surveys, you know, they interview millennials or, or young professionals in the city and they say, oh, we, we're going to move to the suburbs when we have kids. And so then the city says, oh, we don't need to build housing for them because they don't want to live here. Right. Whereas I think if you if you build the housing and build the amenities, you're going to get the committed urbanist first to really adopt it. So your your project's not going to fail especially at first because, you know, there's so few of these projects. Um, but then you're going to get a lot of the one-over urbanists in there. And you even get, you know, usually or often within a couple, you know, if, if it's co-parenting happening, you have, you know, one's leaning more towards moving to the suburbs, mm-hmm. one's leaning to staying in the city. So these policies and these amenities that really cater to parents, you know, sway those discussions, I think, a lot. When you make it easy for parents to stay, right, they will. And once they build social connections, you know, then they're going to not want to lose those. Yeah, and they'll they'll think about that. They'll think about: Do we get the bigger yard, or do we, 
uh, you know, and have to spend 30 minutes to see our friends? Or do we just see them, you know, a few times a week bumping into them in the hallway or in the park? Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, you brought up kind of preference surveys, like mm-hmm. so much of what people express as their preferences, but also so much of what people reveal yeah. as their preferences through where they choose to live and, and mobility is wrapped up or, you know, we researcher dorks say endogenous, but, or constrained by what's possible. Yeah. Right. And, and so like, if, if, you know, really a city is, is generally offering you a relatively pastoral, um, you know, low stress suburban environment and a, a highly urban environment that's not really conducive in in a bunch of different ways, you know, to raising a family, then like, it's not really a choice in the, in the way that we kind of, you know, try to frame it um, or design a a survey or a study on, you know? And so this at least gets us something more on the menu to choose. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the, you know, back to, to Shane bringing up the story of the daycares, like the, the demand so easily exceeded the supply, you know, that the city has been able to, to offer at this point. So I, I think once that, that change starts to happen, you know, like it, it happens really fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem, I mean, sort of in the same way as the individual buildings, like that critical mass yeah. is really important. Exactly. I want to move on here and, and, kind of challenge some of these policies a little bit because yeah. I think please <laughs> I, I've had I, I've always had my my hesitations with these requirements that buildings have very specific you know shares of of two or three bedroom units or provide you know whatever facilities on site and you know you hear it's pretty common for politicians and others talking about making urban areas more family friendly to advocate for things like a minimum share of units and buildings being two or three bedrooms. And just to go through some concerns I have, you know, one is that in many cities, the housing type we're most lacking isn't actually family-sized housing. It is the one and two bedrooms that we just didn't build a lot of in the past. Clearly not the case in downtown, but I think that's often the case. Another is I just have this sort of general ambivalence about this idea that every building needs to be like a microcosm of the entire community yeah. as opposed to just having them specialized in different things. And, you know, the third, and I think this is probably the most important and most concrete is the question of whether these family units are actually going to be occupied by families. It seems like what often ends up happening or certainly what could end up happening at least is that the two and three bedroom units just end up being rented by two or three roommates who might actually have more income less costs mm-hmm. at least <laughs> and not have to worry about daycare and things like that. And so, you know, you're getting larger units, but it's maybe not actually leading to more families. So I'm I'm sure you've heard all these concerns before and I'm curious, you know, what your reaction is to them. Yeah, no, I mean I think those are all uh, really valid points. Um what what I would say is I do think, you know, we're not lacking family-sized housing if you're talking about detached houses. Mhm. But if you're talking about multifamily buildings in dense neighborhoods with lots of amenities, we really have built very little of that. Yeah. You know, yeah, so right. I think I think that's safe to say we're we're really lacking those kind of neighborhoods and areas. Um, you know, and I, I agree. On one hand, I agree that 
Or I definitely agree that not every building should be a microcosm, you know, of, of, <laughs> of the regional demographics or whatever. But I do think there, there's interesting room for mixing within buildings. Uh, like I mentioned this in, in the paper, uh, at the co-op in Athletes Village, which co-ops are different, you know, they're, they're more intentional. They adopted, adopted an internal policy of right of first offer to relatives of new units. So it's not a right of first refusal. There's no like, you know, ability to counter offer and 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 take it to court. But there's when a unit becomes available, you you're supposed to send out like an email and say, "Hey, does anyone have a grandparent or a parent, mm. you know, that wants to move into this unit?" Yeah. And at that point, you have in an 84 unit building, you had three three generational families wow. or three sets of grandparents that moved in, which there's this idea of the the sandwich generation, which which I've personally experienced where you're you're taking care of young your young kids and then you're taking care of your sick and dying uh parents and it's i mean it's a lot of stress mm-hmm. and spatially so and also you know some if grandparents are healthy they can help out with young kids right so th- i think there's 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 some kind of mixing in buildings that that can be really beneficial and great um i mean i interviewed people in dc who lived in a condo they loved and there was an open unit. And when they had kids, their parents rented it for a year, you know, and then moved out. Um, I didn't get into this in, in this paper, but Vancouver and more uh, Burnaby, which is a suburban municipality uh, with Simon Fraser University, they've experimented in what they call ADUs in the sky or, or granny flats in the sky, where you attach a micro unit indeed to a one or two bedroom condo mm-hmm. that then you can expand into it and contract, oh, you know, as yeah. you need and get, you can get a mortgage easier because you've got rental income you can factor in. So, so I think there's a lot of room for experimentation with form. Um, and I do think if we, you know, if us cities focused more on the, the whole package, you know, of the neighborhood, you would get a lot of families moving into these buildings, even if they were market rate and not having the the roommate effect. Like that's what's happened. I'm in Mount Pleasant, uh, D.C., which is, you know, a built in 1900 townhouse neighborhood. Uh, they were all cut up into multiple units during World War II mm-hmm. and then functioned as huge group houses in the 70s. I mean, it's a really complicated racial and class history. I don't want to oversimplify it. But now you've got and this is happening in Chicago, where they're being converted back to single right, family right. homes for, you know. Like the triple deckers that are becoming one unit, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that roommate phenomenon, you know, is the economically, you know, viable thing for a time. But once a neighborhood becomes attractive enough, then professional class families start taking that housing back. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you haven't got enough, you know, public housing or 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 mixed income housing in there, you're going to, you know, lose the, the economic diversity in the neighborhood. Okay. So I think we'll, we'll close it out with this question. And, you know, you've mentioned this a few times, Vancouver is just a phenomenally expensive city. Yeah. And, and also new multifamily housing is really strongly weighted toward owner occupancy rather than rental, yeah. um, especially compared to us cities where it's really kind of the opposite. So I'm curious how all of that, factors into this what influences both the, just the cost and this this emphasis on owner occupancy has on the family friendliness of Vancouver and, and downtown in particular yeah that's a that's another really important point um in Vancouver 
all buildings or all tall buildings are pre-sales, which is a really interesting, you know, phenomenon. So you buy a building based off, you know, looking at the architectural drawings of the building. Like you put down hundreds of thousands or a million dollars or whatever five years before Uh, it's ever built. Not even that much, Mm -hmm. but you you put down a down payment. Okay. Um, So, yeah, I I don't think you, you know, and they, I mean, when I was doing my research, you know, units in the social were like Mm 700,000. You know, they've shot up. I think between a lot of people got in for like four or five hundred thousand um you know so uh you know like i said the, the around 2017 the condo market took a huge jump mm-hmm. a- exponential jump in price but so that I, from from what i've understood talking to developers and, and planners in the u.s there's nothing you know illegal about doing pre-sales it's just sort of not culturally what people in the u.s are used to doing so i think if if you could figure out a way to do that, you know, that would be a way to get the model attractive to professional class families. Um, I do think the reason it's been adopted uh, so readily by professional class families is is because they are condos and not rentals. You know, like I do think in the U.S., you're not going to get families that could be – there's such an idea of we should be building equity in mm-hmm. the house that we own. That's so central, like for better or for worse, yeah. you know, and we can – that's another discussion. And if you're going to if you're gonna spend all the money living downtown because it is expensive exactly. kind of, no matter the circumstances, rather pay a $4,500 mortgage and get a lot of equity than a $3,500 rent and get, you know, nothing in the end. Yeah, exactly. So you – know, and, and – you know, in a lot of U.S. cities, that it's even like your your monthly payment goes down once you buy. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's really crazy. So, um, you know, either we could tweak policy to adjust that, or we could figure out a way to encourage pre-sales as a as a model. I do think, you know, as as neighborhoods really gentrify, you know, looking into other models like co-ops and limited equity housing and mixed income housing. There's ways to make it attractive in, in that way, mm-hmm. for sure, especially if you start to do that before prices get out of control. But th- those are sort of where, you know, th- that's where like I'm going in this research agenda of sort of the all age city trying to and trying to, you know, how do we make affordable neighborhoods um, and how do we have mixed income public schools? Uh, just to end on schools, since we, we talked about schools a lot, uh, you have a lot of like new research. It's not quite articulating this, but this is seems to be sort of what's happening. You know, a neighborhood would gentrify, and then 10, 15 years later, the elementary school finally gentrifies mm-hmm. because the demographics have already mm-hmm. changed, mm-hmm. you know. And once gentrifying parents, you know, accept the school, which is a whole complicated argument, you know, then all of a sudden the, the neighborhood demographics are changed enough that it can go from... 75% free and reduced lunch to 25% free and reduced lunch. And we see the opposite happening in the suburbs, where suburban schools are going from hardly any low-income students to majority low-income students. Right. So yeah. you have this, you know, be, because we're not building equitable neighborhoods and we're not planning for that around schools. Uh, so that's, you know, and how to do that is is really hard, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, something we should we should be trying to figure out. Ending on the fact that it's very hard and we don't quite know what to do, I think is a very good place to end. Very appropriate. So it's, it's always so hard. Yeah. <laughs> Lou Thomas, thanks for being on the show. 
Thank you, Shane and Mike. It's, it's, I'm a big fan of both of your work, and it's, it's such a pleasure to talk to you guys. Uh, I really appreciate it. You can read more about Dr. Thomas's research and find our copious show notes and a transcript of the interview at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. I especially recommend checking out Vancouver's Housing Families at High Density Report, which has an amazing cover page that I really want to turn into a poster and put on my wall. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and you can find Mike at MC underscore Lens. Thanks for listening to the UCLA Housing Voice podcast. And as always, we appreciate you spreading the word about the show. See you next time.